Uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. We are going to continue our study in Ephesians. We left off uh, in chapter 4, and Paul was talking to the church at Ephesus about uh, working together as one body, that we all have different gifts and everything else, but we, we come together as one, and we are one in Christ. But then, now we get to verse 17, and he begins to break it down to the individual, like there's, Ephesus is not anything like Corinth. Uh, you know, Corinth was where they really struggled with morality, and but in Ephesus, they had their issues as well, uh, as we get to, and, and Paul is doing Somebody said, you, you, you say the same thing every week. Paul is doing what uh, I talk about every week, and that's reminding them about who they are. That's it. That's what today's message is about. Again, is it's not my message, it's Paul's message. And here's where he starts in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. Obviously, the Lord is in agreement with what Paul's teaching right here because, one, the, the word is true. It's infallible. There's no error here. So the Lord's in agreement with what Paul's saying. But what he's saying is you should no longer walk you, you should no longer conduct your life, is what he's saying. This is literally about behavior. It's about behavior. We had a party in here one time, Levener did, and got a little out of hand on one of the lanes, and I was sick at the time, and I was at home, but Michelle came home and goes, well, we can't ever do that again, and I think Keith, Keith said to her, yeah, we can do it. We just have to tell him not to get drunk at a leavener party. <laughs> and I think this is what Paul's doing right here. He's literally saying, hey, sometimes you just have to say the obvious. You have to state the obvious. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. And when he's talking about the Gentiles, he's really talking about it's, it's a nation of people who are not Jews. You would be a Gentile. But in that time, in that time, they were literally described as the people who were ungodly and unregenerate, and they were pagan. They just did all these filthy things. The Jews would look down upon them. And we go to what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God, He's literally saying, we know God, but you don't. Now, understand, understand, this is after the cross. This is after Acts, chapters, you know, chapters 8, when it came to the Gentiles. But now the Gentiles are able to receive Christ. They even were before that. They were able to. It's just not many did. But he's describing a behavior. They were this... This city that was known for their temple Diana, she was a, 
basically a sex and fertility goddess. Uh, it was kind of rampant in that area, not that it's not any different today. We kind of live in the same filth today, uh, and it's all around us. So there's a lot of vanity going on. There's a lot of folly and emptiness that's happening. I, one of my, I don't quote theologians very much, but uh, I still like A.W. Tozer. Uh, I probably referred to him several times today, but he says this, Israel did not reject the Lord because of philosophical reasons. Israel's rejection was for moral reasons. I'm telling you this, and it's a statement that I need not modify. I do not believe there is anybody that ever rejects Jesus Christ on philosophical grounds. The man who continues in his rejection of Christ has a pet sin somewhere. He's in love with iniquity. He rejects Jesus on moral grounds, and then he hides behind false philosophy, philosophical grounds. I believe that every one of these who are having intellectual difficulties is hiding because he is morally reprobate. When we fall in love with our sin, we can imagine and manufacture 10,000 syllogisms to keep us away from the cross. I mean, that's kind of what we deal with. We... I think this is like the greatest, the best news ever. This is the best news ever, yet people can't hear it, people can't receive it, because they're so infatuated with their own personal lives and what they're doing, what they're sowing, what they're reaping. And this is literally what Paul's saying. This is all futility of their thoughts. Verse 18 says, They are darkened in their understanding." excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. When he uses the word darkened, he's literally talking about the spiritual condition before Christ. You, you have to understand something right here. What Paul is talking about is these people that he's writing to is the church. These are people that come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Yet because of their experiences before Christ, their flesh, they still go back to those things. And he's trying to say, no, you've walked away from those things. You you should be different. You were actually made different. Now be different. And so he uses this term, they are darkened in their understanding. He's referring to the Gentiles who don't know Jesus They're excluded, they're alienated, they're a stranger, they're separated. Those that don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior are separated from us in this room that do. And then he uses this word, ignorance. It's it's not with intellectual matters of the world, but of the things of God. (laughs) He... I, I'm, I'm considered ignorant. I'm considered ignorant because I don't accept what the world tells me. You, you hear what I'm saying? And Paul's literally saying they're ignorant because they don't have the Spirit and can, and can understand what God is telling them. We're both calling each other ignorant. 
I understand what they have. I understand it. But just because I don't agree with it and I live my life different, I'm labeled as ignorant. Because I don't believe what they believe. They don't, now, they can't understand what I know, though. They can't. There's no way, whatever you want to call it, liberal, left, whatever you want to call it, the world, they don't understand what I understand. They don't. And there's a reason for that. It's because once I believed, I received a Holy Spirit, and it's that Holy Spirit that allows me to look at this and interpret this and to understand it. I understand it because there's a Spirit of God inside of me. If there's not a spirit of God inside of them, they're ignorant. That's what, that's what Paul's literally saying right now. And then it brings them to the hardness of their heart. That's that sin nature that they inherited from Adam. The same sin nature that you inherited when you were born. You were born with a sinful nature, but once you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, things changed all of a sudden. He literally took, look at these verses, Ephesians 2 that we've already discussed a few weeks ago. It says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as, uh, as the others were also. Everybody in this room was born with a sinful nature, and it was natural for us to sin. But once, once you believe that Jesus is the Son of God... And then he came and died on the cross how many times? Once. He died on the cross one time. He forgave us of all of our sins. He took our old sinful heart out and he replaced it with a new heart. I am a new person. Romans 6, 6 says this, For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Look, I was born some 2,000 years after Jesus was crucified, but spiritually, I was crucified with him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I mean, this is the whole thing. I'm a different person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're new. You've been made different. You've been made different. You're perfect. You're perfect. You're holy. You're forgiven. You've been made righteous. There's nothing more you can do to make yourself any better than you already are. Tozer says this, it may shock some readers to suggest that there's a difference between being Bible-taught and Spirit-taught. Nevertheless, it is so. It is altogether possible to be instructed in the rudiments of the faith and still have no real understanding of the whole thing. And it is possible to go on to become an expert in Bible doctrine and not have spiritual illumination, with the result that a veil remains over the mind, preventing it from apprehending the truth in its spiritual essence. Most of us are acquainted with churches that teach the Bible to their children, reinforce it with catechism classes, and still never produce in them a living Christianity nor an energized godliness. Their members show no evidence of having passed from death unto life. 
None of the earmarks of salvation so plainly indicated in the scriptures are found among them. Their religious lives are correct and reasonably moral, but wholly mechanical and altogether lacking in radiance. Many of them are pathetically serious about it all, but they are spiritually blind, getting along with the outward shell of faith while all the time their deep hearts are starving for spiritual reality. It has been said that scriptures, to be understood, must be read with the same spirit that originally inspired them. No one denies this. But even such a statement will go over the heads of those who hear it unless the Holy Spirit inflames the heart. Now, I can attest to what he just said. Sven, I think you can attest to what he just said. I mean, we both went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I have a master's degree. I'm, I'm qualified to be up here on the stage. I, yeah, I have a master's degree. I'm special. <laughs> in 2001, I sat in Panera and said to Keith Tyner, I said, you're right and I'm wrong. Everything I've been taught in Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, everything I taught was taught by my mom, everything I was taught by, not everything, but I had a lot of baggage to, to unpack because I, I, I literally was taught what, what toes are saying here. I was taught how to be mechanical. I was taught, you know, this is the way that you witness to a person. You have these beads on your arm, or it's A, B, C, or it's the Romans Road. I, I was taught all the mechanics. It wasn't until I was like 37 years old that all of a sudden, oh, wait a second, this is a whole different game. I'm holy, I'm righteous, I'm redeemed, I'm perfect. The same thing I keep teaching finally made sense to me. I, I, I honestly, as the mechanical Rusty, I never wanted to be on this platform. I never wanted to teach. But once that whole spiritual realization came around, it's like, let me at it. I'll talk about it all day long. I'll repeat myself every week. I don't care. I want them to hear it. I want them to understand what they have, what they've been made. And again, this doesn't have anything to do with salvation. It has to do with just the, the quality of experiencing the abundant life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Not when you die and go to heaven, but that you might have it right here today on earth. And you guys, I, I haven't perfected that whole behavior side of things. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I'm still processing. I'm, I still change my mind about things but it's got to match up with this for that to happen verse 19 it says they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with the desire for more and more callous means they basically just quit caring they just stopped I, I don't care and I'll be honest with you I've got believing friends that have just quit caring. Again, I don't think it, it's a loss of salvation. It's a matter of them walking by their flesh, walking by their own selfish 
desires walking by their own selfish strength. Doesn't have to do with salvation. But that's literally what they, they've just given up, particularly about the things they do or how they're perceived by those around them. They just quit caring. They're openly committing sin. They don't care. And then they've become desensitized and they're struggling with pursuing the things of God. And I struggle with that. Like, how do you, how do you help those people? This is what Paul's struggling with right here. They became callous and gave themselves over. How, how do you help those people? I will encourage, I will show grace, but it is the Lord that will do it in their life, not me. It has to be the Lord. Verse 20 says this, but that is not how you came to know to learn about Christ. Again, that's in reference to salvation. Now that you've come to know who Christ is, Paul's indicating at some point the people in Ephesus, at some point the people in this room came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and you learned about it. I get that in this room we have all levels of knowledge about Jesus, about God, about the Spirit. I get it in this room. When I began to teach out of youth ministry and into the adult world, somebody said, don't change the way that you teach. Keep teaching sixth graders. Keep teaching sixth graders. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Verse 21, it says, Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Oh, man. The truth. He says, assuming, that's basically making reference to this fulfilled condition. You are saved. You have salvation. But then he gets to this one part. It says, you were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. This is a, a word that is being abused. Truth. Uh, March the 25th, 2019, in a live appearance at UCLA's Royce Hall, Oprah explained why it's important for all of us to find our own truth. Our own truth. What is the truth of me? Why am I here And what do I have to offer? Oprah asked, the answer, she says, is yourself. This is the lady that is followed by millions of people. The answer, she says, is yourself. She shares why you are enough, just as you are. I'll tell you this in this room right here. Just keep this between me and you. There is no your truth. There is no your truth. There's your opinions. And there's your experiences. I get that. But there is no your truth. 
there's only one truth. We look at John 18, verse 37, 38, says, Pilate asked, you are the king then? It's right before he's getting ready to be crucified. And Jesus replies, you say that I am a king. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone who is of Jesus, who is the truth, hears my voice. And Pilate says, what is the truth? That's what our world is asking today. What is the truth? What is the truth? You hear the two terms, absolute truth and relative truth. Absolute truth is the truth regardless of how a person thinks or feels about it. It's just a fact. It is what it is. It's truth. But relative truth is the belief that truth changes based upon the individual's understanding of it. The problem with the whole relative truth thing is it is a total contradiction in itself. If truth, if truth is actually factual and indisputable, then you cannot have different truths for different people. You can't have your truth. Relative truth is actually a rejection of absolute truth. Relative truth is a rejection of absolute truth. John 14, 6 says, the truth comes from Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There's one absolute truth in this whole world, and it's Jesus. It's constant. It never changes. How do you know what is truth? Because truth is constant. Never changes. Your opinions change. Your perspectives change. Your experiences change. But truth will never change. It's objective. In other words, it doesn't play favorites. It is what it is. It isn't based upon what you do or what you do. It is. And this, the third thing, Truth will always prevail. Do not lose hope in this room. Truth will always prevail. It will, it will endure, and it will last forever. That's Jesus. Tell, tell me something different. Ha! Can't. Verse 22, it says, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. Oh, here we go. This is the, the same old, same old. When he says, take off the former way of life, he's talking about before Christ. Everyone in this room had a former life. That's you before believing in Jesus. And Paul's making reference to his former manner and his days before Christ to better identify with his audience. Remember when he says, I'm the worst of all sinners, he was really in, talking about his reference before Christ. 
the only time Paul ever talks about himself being a sinner, labeling himself a sinner, and it was in reference to before his decision about Jesus Christ. But we also have to be careful not to use our past mistakes as an opportunity to to glorify the flesh. Our old self, our old self was our sinful nature that we inherited from Adam. No question about it. And he says, lay this aside. The, the tense here is that it's past tense. It's actually past tense. You've laid aside. You in this room have already laid it aside because that's what you did when you believed. You put your, your self-discipline your own power, you've said, okay, now I'm going to lay that aside because that didn't work so well. And now I'm going to ask Jesus to be the power for me and to do my life for me. He says, um, if the, honestly, if this verse is teaching that the old self remains as a part of myself right here in this middle of this transformation, then it contradicts what we've already read in Romans 6.6. 6. It also contradicts Colossians 3, 9, and 10. It says, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. In other words, the old self is gone. It's been eradicated. There's not a battle between the old self and the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. It is the only way all of these verses can be filtered together is to know that that's gone. There is a battle. Trust me, there's a battle. I get it. But it's not between the old self and the new self. I have a new nature. I'm a new creation. Again, Second Corinthians five 17. I'm holy, righteous, and redeemed. The battle's not taking place in my heart. I have a new heart. The battle takes place right up here. Battle takes place right up here in my head. You know what I got up there? I have the mind of Christ. I'm able to like read this. I'm able to read this and, and figure it out and understand it and filter, filter everything in this room. I can filter everything in this room because I have the mind of Christ. People go, you meet in a bar? Yeah, well, it's no big deal. I have the mind of Christ. But there's this battle, Romans 7, 23, it says, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. This verse really explains it's a warning of the new self and the power of sin that dwells in our flesh. There's something that generates these thoughts that are just like corrupt and evil in me. I have corrupt and evil thoughts. Where does that come from if I'm holy, righteous, and redeemed? Paul says there's this this power that's like working in my flesh. I mean, who who is it that sins? I'm going to be honest with you. It's me. It's the new man. It's the new creation that sins. I still sin. I still make mistakes. I still sometimes do things in my own strength. Sometimes I, I, I... I don't trust the Lord. I trust myself more. 
it's the new man that needs to mature in the knowledge of Christ. And the more you know Christ, your behavior will more naturally line up. In that old mechanical side of me, I was taught how to like uh, manipulate my sin, how to overcome my sin, how to... And what I'm telling you here and what Paul's telling you here is focus your eyes on Jesus. Because he's the one that's going to do that, not you. The old self, that's easily corrupted by deceit, but now you're a new creation. He says, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. I have the mind of Christ. The moment that I believed, God renewed my spirit and my mind at salvation. But I'm still, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. We call that the sanctification process. As I'm growing, I'm learning. My behavior changes. It lines up more with who I am. I sin less and less than I once did. It's just natural. It happens. But how is that even possible if the old self's still attached? It's impossible. It's impossible for the old self to understand spiritual truth. And then the the last verse that he says is this. And to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Again, past tense is indicated here. Paul is actually encouraging his readers to realize they're already a new self. That they're a new man. The believer is not some lowly sinner saved by grace, but a saint who sometimes we sin. That's it. You're not a sinner. That is not your identity. It's not who you are. You can't be if you're holy, righteous, and redeemed. Uh, Yeah, sure, I blow it. The result is that the Christian is to, honestly, to discern. I think not only to discern, but also to prove the will of God. What's the will of God? Walking by the Spirit. What's the will of God for your life? For you to walk by the Spirit. How do I prove that? I don't show off about it. I just do it. It's natural. Breathe. Let him do it. Again, Tozer says this. The answer is that we are too comfortable, too rich, too contented. We hold the faith of our fathers, but it does not hold us. We're suffering from judicial blindness visited upon us because of our sins. To us has been committed the most precious of all treasures. But we're not committed to it. We insist upon making religion a form of amusement and will have fun whether or not. We are afflicted with religious myopia and see only things near at hand. God has set eternity in our hearts and we have chosen time instead. He's trying to interest us in a glorious tomorrow and we're settling for an inglorious today. We're bogged down in local interest and have lost sight of eternal purposes. 
we improvise and muddle along, hoping for heaven at last, but showing no eagerness to get there. Correct in doctrine, but weary of prayer and bored with God. I hope that's not the case in this room. I, I, I went golfing Friday with uh, three of my friends. And here's, here's the greatest lesson that I ever received. It wasn't from those three guys. It was from Dr. Rob Bell, the sports psychologist that comes here. Rob, if you're listening, I don't know if you remember this day, but it's kind of intimidating to play with Rob. He's a good golfer. This was the first time that I golfed all year. You know, it, this wasn't top golf. This was like 18 holes. First time I got, I don't, I don't play golf that much. I'm nervous around Rob Bell playing Dr. Rob Bell. And I told him, you intimidate me. And he says, stand over the ball. I'm like standing over the ball. He says, stop thinking and trust what you know. Trust what you know. I believe in this room, you guys know it. It's a matter of trusting it. That's all Paul's saying here. Just trust your new creation. Trust it. You've been given a new heart. Trust it. You've been made different. Be different. Just be. Just be. Just breathe. Relax. Don't be mechanical. Trust what you know. Father, that's my prayer is that um, today uh, we can just uh, let go of things of the past and just focus on you and trust you. Trust you with our lives. Just every step, every day, just breathing and letting you live through us. May we understand that more and more even this afternoon. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.